Welcome to Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Voices of Experience podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. No promotional fees have been paid to anyone appearing on Voices of Experience. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Voices of Experience on KIXI AM 880, KKNW 1150 AM. You're listening to this show live on both stations, but I also have a podcast, so you can listen to Voices of Experience podcasts anytime you want. I love it. Yep. Isn't that a great, all those options? All those options. We're, we're like Coca-Cola. We're everywhere. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yes, you know... That's more true. Oh, by the way, I'm Paul Casey. Hi, Paul. And Eric how are you Crema. doing? How Eric are you? Crema. I've met you before. Yeah. What are you doing in here? It's it's all that holiday. Yeah, I know. Out of here. And it's all that holiday. You know, it must it turns your brain to mush. You know, <clears throat> when you mentioned the Coca Cola thing, I went to South Africa in 1981. Okay. And the reason I bring that up is like, what does that have to do with Coca Cola? Right. I'd be asking myself the same question. Yeah, sure. However, we went to some very remote villages then and every village we drove into and through had only one sign on it coca-cola red and white so when you say it's everywhere yeah you are right it's literally it is to me probably the number one brand in the world and i don't think there's a close second just that red and then the coca-cola script yeah i would agree and there's there's a wonderful movie called the gods must be crazy oh yeah you've seen that so i remember that anyone hasn't seen it it starts with a coca-cola bottle (laughs) that's right i'd forgotten that from there that's right but you are right i want to see that movie again (laughs) i remember that was a cult movie for a while yeah because it was so good oh my gosh that's right that's a good one um well, so on with what we have today, we have uh, Neil Peterson. He's going to be first up, actually, in his meandering musings. And today he talks about taking time to think. And it was a pretty good episode that I listened to and couldn't agree more that, you know, he had an extensive career in government and other activities, started things, but how important someone in his early life, which he thought when he was just going to work, I think it was a DSHS or something in Olympia, and somebody who was a high exec was on his, let's just listen to it. He'll tell you. It comes up in just a few moments. So why am I doing? Let me tell the whole thing. So anyhow, that's what that's about. (laughs) All right. So um, we have another feature, Dan Correa. He is the CEO of the Federation of American Scientists. And um, he's talking about STEM today, and that is science, technology, engineering, engineering, and math. Math. And it's really what he goes into detail. I'll give a more extensive introduction when he comes on. But essentially, kids, K through 12, getting more exposed to this. But Because he says a lot of kids today want it, but they're not finding it in their schools. So he'll talk about that. Unfortunately, I was not good in any of those subjects. I wish I had been, you know, if I could go back. Uh, Science in particular. Is interesting to me now, but it's, you know. I tend to agree with myself, too. I was more <laughs> of a social scientist or whatever you call it, but yeah. no, I, I kind of feel the same way. Because <laughs> we lived in an era, or at least I, and we all did in the 60s and the moon, going to yeah. the space program and that. And it was, it was interesting, but it didn't catch my 
Right. Uh, right. You know, didn't jump on the rockets and go. Um, also, we have a two, uh, two Sutherland. She is the best selling author of a series of books called wings of fire. And, uh, she he directed this to children. She's written about 14 books. She's everywhere. Hmm. And, uh, what an imagination she has. And we talk about what it does to children as well. Uh, if you have kids, grandkids, I'd really wait to hear what she has to say. And that's later. Weren't you saying in a recent Voices of Experience that you heard once that the number one thing children need to learn is to read, to, you know, to really be a prolific readers. And that teaches them so much and gives them disciplines that go beyond just the physical reading of the book. Yeah, I had a guest on just recently who said the same thing, and he's a writer, and he gives money to literacy groups and mm. things. And he talked about that, his greatest pride now, and, and actually, Tui says it too, is to see kids you know, gravitate to these books that they write and just to see reading is not something that's a burden. They're loving it, and you've got to teach that very early. And yeah. that, that's what he said. I think you're recalling from that guest I had. And then uh, Tui says that again today. Well, whenever I hear great minds, I think of you. So that's where that went. Oh, um, <laughs> my mind. How about books? Are we going to give away a book today? Yes, we'll okay. do that. How All about right. uh, uh, is self-employment for you written by, of course, Paul Casey? Is that something we can give away today? We can do that. All right. How about this, folks? The contest line is 425-653-1166, 425-653-1166. The first caller to call in, give us your name, your phone number, and your address, wins the book. And I'm going to add to this, not only whatever you said is not true, <laughs> my brain is not functioning. However, I'm going to give two books out today. Two the books. first two calls. First two. Do you need email on that, by the way? No. I thought that's where you go. Okay. That's right. No. And then, um, so I'll, I'll do that. The first two books. And um, again, Eric, as you said, just obviously give us your name, address, and zip code, and we'll get that off to you. And, you know, it's time of year now. Maybe you're winding up a career working for someone else, and or you're retired, and you're thinking, mm-hmm. maybe in the new year I want to explore this. And I do think the book does help about with that, and we're going to talk more about that later in the show today. Right. Because that's something I think is very important to consider. And let's see, we have um, Voices of History today, a presidential candidate who won the popular vote but lost in the Electoral College, conceded the election again on this very day. We're going to talk about that in Voices of History, Timeless Classic. You'll recognize this Christmas song right away, I have no doubt, but there are many different versions, but this is the one that I like the best. So that's what we're going to play today. So I guess we've covered it all. Yes, I think we have. And uh, Eric's giving me the thumbs up, like, get it moving, Paul, right? All right, we'll do that now. Back with Neil Peterson and Meandering Musings in Time to Think. Taking the Time to Think. Charles R. Charlie Morris. Charlie was so special. He was so special to me. When I think about mentors in my life, Charlie is at the top of my list. There are so many stories that I could recount about Charlie, but the one that I want to share is very short, but very powerful, as we come up on the second anniversary of his passing. 
It took place in Olympia, Washington in 1975, almost 50 years ago. Charlie was the secretary of the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services, DSHS. DSHS at the time was the largest state agency with more than 10,000 employees and responsibility for public health, Medicaid, adult and juvenile corrections, aging, alcoholism, drug abuse, welfare, vocational rehabilitation, mental health, developmental disabilities, social services, foster care, nursing home, congregate care facilities, to name a few. Charlie was appointed to the position by the three-term governor, Dan Evans, and served for almost four years. As CEO, he faced tremendous challenges on almost a daily basis. Inevitably, some issues would be on the front page of the Seattle newspapers. Examples include someone escapes from the sexual offender unit at Western State Hospital. Welfare roles are increasing dramatically. Prison inmates at Walla Walla are staging a hunger strike. State mental hospitals are closing with nowhere for the patients to go. You get the idea. I had the privilege of serving initially as Charlie's director of his Office of Management Budget and later as his director of community services with the responsibility for most everything except adult corrections and public health. I was totally committed to serving Charlie and carrying out the numerous goals of the agency. And I was not alone. There was a tremendous sense of responsibility that most of the staff of the agency carried with them. That coupled with their commitment to serving the public and their leader, Charlie Morris, made it a great place to work. Having said that, I and many others were working hard, really hard, long days and many nights. With this background, one day around 10 a.m. in the morning, I was walking by Charlie's office at the DSHS headquarters building in Olympia, and the door was open. I looked in, and what I saw shocked me. There was Charlie sitting at his desk, a desk without a single piece of paper on it, not one thing on top of his large desk. But Charlie was not just sitting at his desk. He was leaning back in his office chair that rocked back a little bit, and he had his feet up on his desk. Yes, he had his feet up on his desk. On top of that, Charlie was reading the newspaper. Let me review what I just saw. The head of the state's largest agency with all kinds of responsibilities, sitting in his office, leaning back in his chair with his feet up on his desk, a desk that was totally empty of any papers or files, and he's reading a newspaper. Holy cow, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I look both ways down the halls to make sure that no one else is walking by Charlie's office. I don't want anyone else to see what I've just seen. No siree. I immediately turned into his office and closed the door. I really shut the door. I say to Charlie, what in the hell are you doing? What are you doing sitting here with your feet up on the desk reading the newspaper when you have thousands of employees who are busting their butts for you every minute of every day? Charlie says, Neil, take a seat. Let me tell you something. I take a seat. He looks at me and says with a totally straight face, Neil, I am paid to think, and I am thinking. And he was not kidding, not joking, no, sir. 
so short, so direct, and yet so powerful. I've never forgotten this. It made a lasting impression on me. How many of us work hard, but how many of us take the time to think? Footnote, Charlie was probably the most brilliant person I've ever worked with. His ability to read was amazing, devouring books with lightning speed. When he did not know enough about a topic to satisfy himself, he would set out to be the world's expert and write a book about it. Charlie authored 15 books on an unbelievably wide variety of topics. Charlie Morris. Mr. Casey, a longtime listener for the last several years of your Voices of Experience program, uh, wanted to uh, respond to your question about favorite Christmas movies. For me, it is The Muppet Christmas Carol with an utterly brilliant performance by Michael Caine as Scrooge. Of course, with The Muppets, you have a lot of typical Muppet humor in there, but you also have a genuine, authentic performance by Mr. Kane, where you really show how the character grows over the course of the film, and you have brilliant music and lyrics by Paul Williams that really help to illustrate the story, even if you've heard it told many times over. So Muppet Christmas Carol gets my vote. Well, that's great. So the Muppets movie, before we get to that, uh, some comments on that. Just want to let you know that was Neil Peterson who just talked about taking time to think, and that did have an impact on me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting you have the perception of someone who's in charge of this whole DSHS agency, and he's got his feet up in his desk, and you think, oh, that's a bureaucrat, you know, just reading the newspaper. And he said, hey, I'm just thinking. And that's his job. I mean, seriously. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. I really enjoyed uh, I enjoying them all. But that uh, was particularly one that uh, kind of resonated with me. And uh, if you want to visit his, uh, you can visit meanderingmusingspodcast.net. And that would be how you can hear. I'd say he's got about 25 or 30 in there now that you can listen to and visit that. And they've all, they're all pretty big gems, I think. They are, so. and they're, they're all different, too. That's the amazing thing, is he finds something new to say each and every week. Right. MandarinMusingsPodcast.net, if you want to listen to more of Neil's thoughts on that. Muppets movie. Never seen it. Anybody here? I have. The Muppet Christmas Carol the, the Muppet is Christmas different Carol, yes. from the Muppet movie. Okay. I've seen both, and they're both fantastic, yes. Okay. And the Christmas Carol is one of those movies, it's really tough to kind of one-up the last one. Absolutely. You know? There's been so many mm-hmm. adaptions of A Christmas Carol that it's crazy. You can't see them all. But uh, if you have a family at all, I'd say Muppet Christmas Carol is hard to beat. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's great to hear. I haven't seen that. And again, we've done this. Now for two weeks, the favorite movie, and I think there's only two people who agreed on their favorite. Mm-hmm. That was you and me on Wonderful Life. Yep. But the rest of them, everyone's been different. Yep. Which I think is incredible, actually. There's a lot of them out there, you know, and, and it's sort of res- there's been a resurgence, I would say, the last ten years of a lot of holiday movies, a lot of rom coms, you know, where romantic comedies involving the holidays. You know, last week when we were talking about Wonderful Life. And then you brought up the information about Jimmy Stewart, mm-hmm. who was not really the first choice to be, you know, in A Wonderful Life. It was Cary Grant. Correct. Then it was sell, sold to RKO, and then they RKO wanted Jimmy Grant. Or maybe RKO sold it to whomever did it. And then Jimmy Stewart got the part, 
And then Cary Grant went and played the part of Bishop's wife. Okay. And I'm gonna, I just wanted to add, I saw the movie this weekend, The Bishop's Wife with Cary Grant. I'd never heard of it before. And Lori Wright from West Seattle was the one who mm-hmm. called in and said that was her favorite Christmas movie. Yeah. And I watched it. It's really good. And what's interesting out. about it, it kind of follows some of the line or the story of A Wonderful Life. It kind of has that thing. Cary Grant's kind of an angel that comes down and does some things. And, but it's a great story. Highly recommend it. See, I've already forgotten that. For some reason, I thought it was Gregory Peck. So was it, is it Cary Grant? Oh, God, I'm glad I, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I didn't go all through that. Oh, my God, it was, no, actually, it was. It was Cary Grant. Okay, because I've been watching a lot of movies lately, and they're all good, getting screwed up. Good to know. Yeah, that happens when you're in this time of year. Yeah, Cary Grant in the role of Dudley. There you go. Yes, Dudley. That's right. No, it's a good movie. So I got to say, I'm really glad I took Saturday afternoon to watch it. All right, so now we're going to move on to um, the Federation of American Scientists, the CEO. His name is Dan Correa, and he's going to talk about STEM, again, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. The new research shows that while 75% of Generation Z youth are interested in STEM, the occupations of how they have them in the schoolroom is about one-half of what they say or need. And um, that comes to trying to get more of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics into the classroom. Dan has helped reshape science and technology policy during the Obama administration. And um, let's just get to the interview with uh, Dan Correa. 75% 75% of Generation Z are interested in science, technology, engineering, and math, but less than half say they're engaged in hands-on STEM learning classroom activity. What can we do to close that gap? Well, the research gives us some really good insight on how we might close that gap. The more they're exposed, the more they get excited about pursuing a STEM career. But importantly, what seems to be really powerful is these hands-on opportunities that you described, which less than half of students have a chance to engage in, but it's things like coding, it's things like uh, robotics and and building rockets, cybersecurity. All of these very applied uh, concepts turn out to be really critical for seeding interest among Gen Z. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that if you're in the primary education, K through 12, that what you see. It's like sports. If you did have sports in high school or something like that, or earlier, there may not be any interest whatsoever. Bad analogy per se, but nonetheless, it kind of has the same principle and not saying they all want to jump in and do this in primary education, but when they get to college, that's where it becomes very important, correct? That's true. And I think a lot of students, I mean, given that only half of students really have a chance to, to, to be broadly exposed to these kinds of STEM topics in high school. I think what, what happens is that students who are missing out, they just never catch the bug. And so even in college and beyond, there's a, we have failed to ignite their passion, is how I would put it. And, and I think uh, we are worse for it as a society, and I think for, for students themselves, they're missing out on a chance to be uh, a part of what is a growing STEM workforce growing at twice the rate of uh, the overall workforce. 
And these are jobs that, in general, pay significantly more than, than the average job. So I think the, the stakes are actually fairly high, too. Now, I went to high school and elementary school. It didn't seem to me that there was really that high of interest at that point of going into these types of careers. And I'm kind of feeling positive the fact that so many people or Generation Z do want to, in fact, are very positive in wanting to pursue one of these fields. I think that's exactly right. So if I think back to my own time in, in, in high school, we could take pre-calculus and calculus, but you know, these are pretty abstract mathematical concepts. It's not as if I, I said, wow, this is my passion and I want to go into a career to work on this. So I, I actually think the, the story here is, is a positive one. Students are they're savvy. They, they know what's out there. They, they are generally interested, but they're, they're not pursuing that. And so I, I think the, the conversion is how I would think about it. Going to looking at STEM again, and that's science, technology, engineering, and math, where do you see the greatest demand going forward? Fastest ones that are growing so, uh, tend to be fields that are related to information technology and computer science, web design, data science statistics, things like cybersecurity. These are all fields where the American economy throughout the country needs more of, of this type of expertise, and, and that's going to be true uh, for some time. So if you're a parent and you have students that are in Gen Z, you know, they're in middle school or high school, these are very tangible uh, sectors that are growing substantially, and these aren't just jobs, they're, they're careers for the long term. What effect will artificial intelligence have on what we're discussing now? Well, I think that story remains to be written. Um, in, in fields where AI uh, can enhance the productivity of workers, I think some of the ones that I just named, like data science and web design, I expect that we're going to continue to see job growth. Um, in fields where jobs are very easily automated or could be automated more easily over time, that's where I think we have growing concerns. And so for students uh, who are looking into an uncertain future, um, the, the best bet is to deepen uh, your exposure and understanding of some of the concepts in STEM because those are actually jobs that are, in my mind, likely to be around into persistence particularly the ones that I just named. How concerned are you about AI in general? I have a balanced perspective. I think we've got, there are massive, massive upside potential for AI. Like just to take this conversation where in the classroom, we have teachers that are excited to be using generative AI with their lesson plan. There are students who are interested in uh, digital tutors that are AI assisted. That sounds like in a world in which most ninth grade reading, uh, ninth grade writing doesn't actually get reviewed by a teacher. That sounds like a future where more writing could get reviewed with the help of AI. So that's like the, the good side, right? At the same time, there's obviously reason to be concerned. There's questions about equity discrimination. And I think I'm a little less worried about uh, some of the existential risks that you hear folks talking about. 
But I think there's a pretty robust role for public policy and for those of us uh, across different sectors of the community and folks from my community, which is the science and the science and policy community, uh, to be watching closely and ensure that, that we are guarding against these downsides. Final question, and that would be, what can we do as citizens to help your agenda move forward in terms of, we talked about Generation Z being so interested in um, STEM, and there's that gap of what is being taught in high school and primary education. What can we do? I think the number one thing, the headline, is for parents to say, is my kid getting the opportunity to learn and be exposed to a variety of hands-on STEM topics? Is there a 3D printer in my kid's school? Is there a robotics program? Are they launching rockets? Are they coding? I know that um, these, these opportunities aren't in every school. They're only in about half or less. But I think parents can be the most effective advocates. And then I think at home as well, ensuring that you're uh, providing these opportunities. I think we, these are investments we need to make as a society in order for us to have pipeline into these amazing and promising careers. All right, my thanks to Dan Correa for that. And again, he is the CEO of the Federation of American Scientists. Raised some excellent points. So let's move on to Voices of History for today, huh? Let's see what we got here for today in that file. Oh, here we go. Welcome to today's Voices of History. The Japanese have accepted fully the surrender terms of the United Nations. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World War. We are down. We copy you down, Eagle. So, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. All right, so let's start with December 11th, 1963. Kidnappers released Frank Sinatra Jr. after abducting him in Lake Tahoe. Hmm. Three days earlier, he was blindfolded in his hotel room at Harrah's Club Lodge and taken to Canoga Park in Southern California. The kidnappers demanded $240,000 to be delivered between two school buses in San Sao Paulo, California. Now, what could go wrong? <laughs> Between two school buses. <laughs> I didn't have time to research, like, why did they do that? Well, first of all, why would they kidnap somebody like that? And between two school buses. But, okay, that's why it didn't work out for them, I think. Um, one of the kidnappers got cold feet and dropped Frank Sinatra off in Bel Air in an attempt to avoid public public law enforcement officials, and then he confessed to the crime. The kidnappers were all caught on December 14th, and I'll just say right now, a plug for where I get this information from, the History Channel, and then sort of History Link. You can just go look at it, and you can read much more about that. Sure. It's bizarre. I mean, <laughs> it was crazy. I vaguely remember it as a child when that happened. Yeah, I remember hearing about the the story of it. I mean, obviously this happened well before I was in the world, but uh, such a crazy story. And it, am I wrong in thinking that there was quite a few of these like famous abduction cases, and, and we're thank thankfully not seeing those 
anymore because they never seem to have worked out well for anybody. Right. I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there was what, like the Lindbergh baby. Lindbergh there, baby. there was um, uh, what was the heiress that was uh, uh, kidnapped, and she they Not turned the her into bank robber. Um, uh, oh, never. Bonnie and Clyde? No, 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 no. I know what you're talking about. Which one? Um, I don't want to say. Because not, oh, Patty Hearst. Patty Hearst. Hearst thank yes. you. That's it. Mary yes. Hilton's. <laughs> yeah. Um, Different ones. And it, it never seemed to work out for anybody. So, yeah. Just. Uh, no. And we don't really surprisingly have that many here. I mean, you talk Lindbergh. That was the 30s, right. I believe. And they're spread out. And Patty Hearst was in the 70s. And then we had this in, what, the early 60s. But you have countries like Brazil. This is a daily thing. Yes. And this yeah. happens all the time. You can actually buy insurance. That's you it. By is that kidnapping what it is? insurance. Mm. Right. So that was pretty amazing, but uh, there it is. Now, on December 13, 2000, Vice President Al Gore concedes the election to George W. Bush following league, uh, league weeks of legal battles recounting votes in Florida. So many hanging chads. Yeah, hanging yeah chads. in Florida. We remember living through that. And that was 23 years ago today, which is surprising was that long ago. But Gore gave his concession speech to the nation from his ceremonial office next to the White House. He said, and I think it's worthwhile hearing another time when someone won the popular vote, there was a real controversy about who won that election and a real one. Mm, sure. Hanging chads, Mm -hmm. all that. This is what he said. I'm deeply disappointed and sharply disagree with the Supreme Court verdict. Remember, that was five to four. But he said, in partisan rancor must now be put aside, and I accept the finality of this outcome. This will be ratified next Monday. Again, assuring the nation's stability, even though he's vice president, he's the one who has to count the ballots and certify the election. No problem, country. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do, my constitutional duty. Tonight, for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer this concession. What has happened since? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I just got to spend is, a moment on this. I don't talk about politics a, a lot. Or a woman. What's that? I say the country is larger than just one man or just one woman. He realized yeah, that yeah. because he was a smart man. Mm-hmm. He knew the country. It's not about him, as you just pointed out. It's about the country. Take a step back and just say, I'll get him next time. After you lose a game or something, a bad call or what. Oh, my God, we're, we'll be back next year or something to rally around. And the reason it resonates with me so much is the rancor when he warned about that, the partisan rancor. That was back then. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't even know what words you'd use. Mm-hmm. Like no sense of reality anymore and what we're put through. And he still hasn't, con- when I'm talking to Mr. T, he still hasn't conceded the 2000 election. But, of course, when he lost in 2016 by 3 million votes, ah, I'm in, and no one disputed it. Hillary Clinton did make a nice concession speech. There were a lot of states that were close. So, no, I'm not leaving. I'm going to fight this to the end. But up till this point, this is the difference of where we're at now. We've always had rancor in the country. There's always been different um, people and opinions about what's going on, but they've all ultimately did the right thing to step aside. I don't know where you can look in history to look at anything that we've been through before like this. 
So um, that's my editorial comment on that. Anybody want to add anything before we leave Al Gore <laughs> and thank him? I'm going to thank Al Gore. There you go. Right now, 23 years later. Um, you know, I thought Al Gore, president, or excuse me, vice president, was okay. I mean, I thought he did, but I didn't think he was. It's always hard to gauge the vice president, right, I think, you know? Yeah. It's just like, yeah, you just don't see him enough. You don't right. really know what they're doing. Right, exactly. But anyhow, I'm going to celebrate Al Gore Day today. There you go. <laughs> Al Gore Day today on Voices of Experience. Thank you, Vice President Al Gore, for what you did. We look back now, and it was a very different time. All right. On December 13th, 1949, the world's tallest Christmas tree was planted at the Northgate Shopping Center. That's right. I think... Eric, I've done this before. So no, I, me going. Yeah, I, I, I'm starting to. We did, I think you did yeah. mention it. The 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 term "planted" uh, throws me off here because mm-hmm. it was probably just installed, right? I mean, they they would have chopped it down from somewhere else and and brought it and installed it there. He's nitpicking. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I don't mean to be pedantic, I mean, but I, it pedantic is one of those now. like oh my bees in my to hanging chads over here. <laughs> right, <laughs> we went from that, and I can't even get through a Christmas tree that was planted. I don't want to get political, but it is a bee in my bonnet that uh, you know. Here we are in the evergreen state, and it seems like <laughs> none of the cities have had the foresight to just plant a tree and let it grow and be the official Christmas there you tree. Go. That's a great point. Instead, they chop down a tree every year and bring it back to the same spot when that spot could just grow a, just tree, grow a tree that could be decorated. And you know and what? Be if the they brought that tree. tree in from Canada, I really have a big problem. <laughs> At least <laughs> make right. it an American tree. It's taking our jobs. <laughs> Eric, our I've tree never jobs. heard that point before. That is there an excellent point. I'm sure somebody's going to have some kind of reason why it doesn't happen. But as far as I can tell, it just seems like, hey, trees grow really well here in they Washington. Yeah, do. I've Let's heard that. I, no no cactus. Run into Don't a let plant a cactus. Thank you for that. Very good point. I go political and you jump, but I think yours is actually more impressive because it does seem kind of counterintuitive to chop down a tree. Mm-hmm. Then, yeah, plant the tree and let it grow for years and yeah. put lights on it. Mm. Very good. Uh I don't know if I can top that with anything else other than, all right, finally, the uh, on December 13th, 1983, the Pacific Northwest Ballet opened the Nutcracker production for the first time. Wow. All right. There you go. So, again, this is courtesy of HistoryLink.org and the History Channel link that you can go to there and just put in History Link when you go to History Channel. All right, so um, Eric, you're going to be coming up now with an interview you had, so let's get right to it. It's getting colder, and maybe people need this information yeah, for their cars. Do not, do, not, do not neglect your car this holiday season. All right. You have been listening to Voices of History. If you have historical events that you would like to share, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Well, with winter fast approaching, it's time to think about your vehicle and make sure it's winterized. I have an expert here. I have Jarrett Abramson. He's the service manager there at Liberty Bay Auto in Paulsbo. Jarrett, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Really good. Thanks for joining me uh, via Zoom today. I really appreciate it. Let's get right into it. What's the key things that people need to think about with their vehicle when it comes to making sure it's safe and sound as the winter approaches? 
Yeah, I think the the most important thing is just getting a good inspection on it, comprehensive inspection. You know, the thing that jumps out to me immediately would be your battery, you mm-hmm. know, making sure your battery's in good condition, uh, that you don't have any leakage or loose terminals or corrosion, and just making sure, you, you know, you get it tested. And, and that's something you could simply do yourself just by inspecting it. But, you know, going to a, a repair shop and actually having a test done to it all, as well would be something that I'd be looking at. Also tires, you know, air pressure in your tires, making sure your tires are in good condition mm-hmm. uh, would be something I'd be uh, focused on. You know, wiper blades, um, you know, it's, it's funny, the difference a new pair of wiper blades could actually do for your vehicle, you know, just your comfort level driving in some of this uh, weather that we have around here in the Pacific Northwest. I hear you about the wiper blades, you know, around here, we get all kinds of rain. I mean, it's just like, it's amazing. It's all over the spectrum. And if you have bad wiper blades, you're already a step behind. Oh, yeah. It is actually a safety um, issue in my mind. So mm-hmm. Now, let's go back to tires. There's a time when you can put on studded tires. What is your thought about studded tires? Do you think they're necessary out here in the western Washington area? I think it's really just a case-by-case basis. You know, what type of vehicle do you drive and what kind of conditions are you are you driving in? Um, I think, you know, for me and my family, we all have all-wheel drive vehicles. And so, you know, a studless snow tire is going to pretty much do everything we need to do. But if you're in maybe a rear-wheel drive vehicle, front-wheel drive vehicle, or you live up some, you know, in in the mountains a little bit further, you may consider just going with a a full studded tire. Right. And here, of course, when it snows, people go crazy. Uh, they, they They lose their minds when it comes time to drive in snow. You mentioned all wheel. That's certainly helpful. Um, rear wheel, I would imagine is the most difficult to be out there. Maybe not even go out unless you're super comfortable. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you want to go play around a little bit. I don't recommend driving around in a rear wheel drive vehicle, uh, in some of those difficult climates. Well, and that said too, I see a lot of trucks, four by fours, and, uh, they're cruising along at 70 miles an hour. There's snow on the ground on the highway, but when they hit that ice four wheel drive or not, they're probably going to end up in the ditch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that is important, too. You know, if you're driving a, a truck to have some weight in the back and and to be cautious, and, you know, because all that does play a factor in that for sure. How about fluids in the engine? Because is it a situation where you're using your heater more? Uh, maybe, yep. you know, that you're, you're going to need to make sure your fluids are up to date? Yeah, your cooling system is something that should be checked regularly if you're going in for service at any reputable shop. You know, but also you have your, your washer fluid, too, that has a freeze protection on there. Um, the engine coolant uh, definitely would be right there. The other thing that people don't think about is your AC system. You know, make sure your AC system is actually operating. Believe it or not, pulls moisture out the cab of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So that does use your AC system for the defrost. And so having that functioning properly, it will be helpful as well, just to keep windshield and glass, you know, clean and, and free of fog. Gotcha. I imagine too, that uh, just in case you end up in that ditch, and it's going to be a while for that tow truck or or state patrol to show up, maybe have something like a warm blanket or a rain gear or something like that in your trunk. I think, you know, blankets, uh, cell phone chargers, battery jump pack, you know, those are all things that, you know, I think would be, you know, vital to have in that situation, a flashlight, ice scrapers, you know, things like that would be, you know, necessity to have in your vehicle this time of the year. And you can just put them in a simple box or, you know, a little crate and put it in the trunk and take it out come spring. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, I actually, I think I see some of those kits, maybe Costco, mm-hmm. you know, some of the auto parts stores, they actually have a winter kit now that they have, that they sell that can be useful for a lot of people. Well, Jared, thank you so much for your time and your information. Really appreciate it. I just want our listeners to know that they need to be out there safe and sound when they're driving. I appreciate your time, the fact that you're service manager there and your knowledge at Liberty Bay Auto. I've actually purchased a couple of cars there over the years. And so I'd love to give a shout out to your employer, uh, libertybayauto.com. Let people check that out. 
And again, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Any final words? No, I would say, you know, just consistency is the biggest thing. If you're going to one of these highly rated repair shops around town, you know, they should be taking good care of you and keeping you update up to date on all your maintenance. And so that way, when the winter comes around, you don't have to spend a bunch of money to get caught up. Just, you know, continually be on top of it. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Jared. Really appreciate your time. You're welcome. And welcome back to Voices of Experience. Hope you enjoyed that interview. I'll tell you what, if you want to learn more about this uh, program, definitely check out VoicesOfExperience.com. When you're there, you're going to see something like Is Self-Employment for You? The book that we've said, the first two callers who call in at 425-653-1166. Those callers, those first two, will get the book if they leave their name, phone number, and address. Well, Paul, we're back into it. And since I mentioned Self-Employment, Is It For You?, How about that pre-flight checklist? Uh, You know, I was looking at your list recently, and you have things like judgment and organization, execution of sales, and reliability. Maybe we can tackle a couple of these in the time we have. Let's start with judgment. What do you mean by that? Well, I think it's probably the easiest measure and the hardest to make about yourself when you're looking in the mirror, essentially. And all I'm suggesting is if you are taking this step into self-employment, Look at your life, whatever point you're back to or whatever point you're in, and ask yourself, when I have been on my own and I've decided to go to college, not to go to college, I decided to move here or not to move here, decided to marry this person or not, whatever you're buy this car or not, whenever you've had decisions, this job, should I take it or not, are you by and large happy with what you said or to yourself at that moment? And you feel pretty good about your decisions in life. I mean, we all have things that we regret. Sure. I mean, why did I do this? Yeah. But by and large, if you can say in a scale of one to 10, I'm at about a seven, even maybe an eight, way higher than me. But if you look at like in seven, eight territory, when you look at that and you say, yeah, pretty much I've done that. There's where I think your prospects for success are much higher in succeeding in business, like one of the questions that you answer on the quiz. So that's why I suggest judgment is absolutely key. You just don't know it all the time. It's not explained to you, but it's there. And take a look back on your life, and you can say, by and large. So I'm thinking about hopping into business now. I probably have you know, a lot of the credentials to be successful because I've been thoughtful and what I've done before. That's Sa- what that means. A little esoteric, but I think it's important. No, and it's sage advice. And I welcome people to go again to your website at voicesofexperience.com. Take that quiz for themselves. Uh, we need to go to the next segment. I think we do. We've had too much fun here today. So uh, let's go to our final interview today, and that is Tui Sutherland. She is the author of the New York Times and USA Today bestselling Wings of Fire series. It's an epic adventure set in a world entirely ruled by dragons. Um, talked with about the, uh, and also I'm going to say in the interview, uh, we talked about her, her two victories she had on Jeopardy in 2009. How did you become so interested in dragons in the first place? Oh, I've always loved dragons. I loved them like from when I was a little kid. I read all of the Anne McCaffrey books, which are set in a world called Pern, and there are dragon writers, and there's um, the first book for kids is called Dragon Song, and it's about a girl who bonds with these, like, nine little babies, where they're, they're just tiny dragons that follow her everywhere. Oh, my gosh, and I wanted that so much. I wanted dragons of my own. <laughs> 
And then as I started thinking about writing a series like this, I wanted to write about the like what the dragons themselves are thinking instead of like what do the humans think of the dragon? Wouldn't it be interesting to flip it around and tell the story like from the dragon's point of view and let them have all the adventures and all the fun? Why do you connect so well with kids? I mean, obviously you were a young child and you said that's when you made your connection. But what resonates with the younger kids today about your books? Well, I think partly I'm hoping that they can find themselves in this story because it's not just dragons like breathing fire and fighting each other. They're also, you're like inside the dragons and you're feeling like they each have a different personality and they all have these really strong like voices or characters. And what I'm hoping is that the kids who are reading it can find themselves in these dragons because there's a prophecy and there are dragons that have to save the world. But what I'm trying to say over the course of the series is that anyone can save the world, no matter what kind of person you are or what kind of dragon you are. So when you travel and you get to meet younger kids, what jumps out at you from your interaction with them that may surprise you about the series of books you've written? The absolute best thing about getting to meet the kids is seeing their own ideas for this world. There are so many kids writing their own stories and creating their own dragons and drawing like art of the dragons that they've come up with. I think that's been like my absolute favorite thing about working on these is realizing that that it's like a whole world for them to jump into and i want them to feel welcome in that world like write your stories you know draw your dragons um save the world your way that's exactly what i'm going for and they're so creative and they have so many wonderful ideas yeah and it must be really gratifying i interviewed an author a couple of weeks ago about something entirely different subject but what he feels really good about is in this world of social media, which has its pluses and negatives and, and whatever, but what you're doing is getting younger kids into books, and that's what he feels most proud of. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I it gives me hope for the world to get to meet those readers and realize how many kids are still reading books and, like, loving them and feeling, you know, they get so excited to meet an author. Like, that's amazing that there are still kids who feel that way. I'm I'm like, we're going to be okay if, if those kids are coming up um, to rule the world eventually. <laughs> what is different about this particular book? So the newest one that's, come, that's just come out is a guide to the whole dragon world, Wings of Fire, a guide to the dragon world. And it is actually more of a sort of encyclopedia or a field guide introducing um, all the ten tribes that are in this, you know, it's sort of the quote-unquote nonfiction version <laughs> of, the, uh, of the series where you get um, to hear like the history and the details of each of the tribes and then it's interspersed with stories um, that give you a little more detail of answering some of the questions that kids have had over the years. What steps do you take to write a book? Do you have a day which you sit down two hours in the morning, have coffee, go for a walk, come back and, and, and write? Or how, what is your procedure to do this? Because so many people say, I want to write a book, but they never get it done. I, I find the, the part where motivating myself to just sit down and write um, can be hard, uh, if I, especially if I have a million other things that I could be doing. Um, I will say, when I, so I originally was writing at night and I had a regular nine-to-five job. And when I left that job to write full-time, I totally read books like what you wrote about self-employment and how to organize my day and like be more focused. I found it really helpful, actually. And now, finally, I'm in a little bit more of a rhythm. I have two kids, and so they go off to school. And usually I'll get up and have my coffee. I'll do the near Times crossword puzzle because <laughs> that helps get my brain moving. And then I'll try to write for a few hours before they get home. And then, at the, and then I spend, like, the afternoon and the evening with my kids and with my family. And then after they go to bed, I do some more writing because my, I'm a night owl, so I love writing at night. I love staying up really late. 
And most of my best writing happens between like midnight and 3 a.m. When you wrote your first book, what was that like? Did you get rejection or people immediately uh, want this book or how did that go? Interestingly, I sort of came in the side door of publishing because I started off um, working in working in publishing in New York City. I had a job on the editorial side of a children's book department that did really young books. So it was books um, with stickers in them or glitter tattoos. And so as like an assistant in that department, we often got to write the books because they were really short. It was only like one sentence per page for like a 16-page book. So it was a really great way to get started because there was very little pressure. My boss was the main editor and she would help me like edit it and make it perfect. And then I would have my name on a book, but I would also not feel like, oh my gosh, my entire heart is in this book. So it gave me a lot of practice. I've been doing that for several years. I was writing at home or working on this novel I had that I was like, that, that really did have a lot more of my heart in it. I had moved from one publishing company to another, and then I gave that book to um, like an editor that I knew. And she found someone else that she thought would be like the perfect editor for it. So you did get rejected. Yeah, I've had things be rejected, although my agent is very nice about Rejecting you. Yeah, and that's part of it. I mean, you're not going to get accepted all the time, so you have to put your ego and pack that away a little bit and bounce back, which obviously you have done. And also, you know, you do crossword puzzles, and then I also see that you are a fan of Jeopardy, so you've got to have a lot of gray in your brain, a lot of brain power to do all these things. You had the distinction of being a two-day champion in 2009, and what was that like? It was really fun. It was one of those sort of, like, bucket list things that I'd always wanted to do because my grandparents used to watch Jeopardy, and we would sit and, like, whenever we visited them, it was part of the of their, like, daily routine is that we would sit and watch Jeopardy before dinner. And so from a very young age, I had this dream that I would one day try out and be on the show. And it was after I got married, but before we had kids, I said to my husband, like, I think now is the time. I want to try out because once we have children, I feel like my brain will be a little less, like, nimble. Um, and I'll not be able to remember all the presidents in order <laughs> when I'm chasing a toddler around. So I tried out for the show. Um, there's a few stages of auditions. And then they called me and said, yes, we want you on in, like, three weeks. So I had to, like quickly do a lot of memorizing and then um, go out to California to be on. Yeah, and so I, I won uh, two shows and then I lost the third show, but I lost to a children's librarian, so that, that felt okay. I was like, well, at least a good person beat me. <laughs> a children's librarian, that's kind of ironic. You have another novel coming out, Wings of Fire. Let's end with that. When will that be coming out and what do you hope people take away from that novel? So the next Wings of Fire book that's coming out is actually the seventh graphic novel. It's an adaptation of book seven into a graphic novel, and that's coming out December 26th. Beyond that, I'm working on sort of a book 16 of the series, like what's going to happen next in the dragon world. And so we are, are ending the show right now. Uh, very much thank you to all the guests today. And again, my name is Paul Casey, your host of Voices of Experience. But we're out of time. Any comments about what you heard today, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166, 425-653-1166. Next week, James Donaldson, former Washington State University basketball star and NBA great with the Dallas Mavericks, Utah, Seattle, LA Clippers, Oklahoma Thunder, will be here. He now heads Gift of Life Foundation, and he speaks about mental health, and suicide prevention. I really think you should tune into this. He, he's got a very strong personality, and he talks about his struggles as well. We also have Sarah Jensen, 2024 uh, World Almanac is out. She is the executive editor of the World Almanac. 
and so many different things happen. And I really strongly believe that we live in a world today that we need factual information like this more than ever. It's a remarkable book. It really is. And you can get it online, too. So listen next week to Sarah Jansen. Let's see. What else? Voices of Experience airs on Kixie Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Simulcast with Hubbard's sister station, KKNW, 1150. And Voices of Experience is rebroadcast on Kixie only on Sundays at 11 a.m. Thanks to Neil Peterson, Eric Crema, Eric Ryder, and Benny Mathers for help pulling this all together. Quote of the week. My mother-in-law has come around to our house at Christmas Eve seven years in running. This year, we're going to have a big change. We're going to let her in. Les Dawson. This week's Timeless Classic is coming up next. Only on Kixie, you'll hear the entire song, KKNW, part of the song. And unfortunately, it will not be played on the podcast because of licensing issues. Thank you very much, and we'll be with you next week. No doubt that you have heard this week's Timeless Classic, but this is by far my favorite version. My show, I Can Make the Rules. The song was written by an American composer, Catherine Kennecott Davis, in 1941. The song was further popularized by a 1958 recording by Harry Simone Corral, the version that you are about to hear. Mm-hmm. 